Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at the new, uh, not so new actually, Amazon original film Late Night, starring Emma Thompson and Mindy Calling. We're also going to take a look at the new, and this one's actually new, uh, It Chapter 2 in theaters now. We're going to talk about It second, because it's almost three hours long, and we think we need more time to get to it. So stick around for that review, and before we get to all of it, we need to talk about the news. First things first, a face-off reboot is... Is in the works at Paramount. Yes, Face Off, the John Woo <laughs> film starring John Travolta and Nick Cage, where they literally swap faces and shoot at each other, is getting rebooted. Andy, you found this article. What do you know about this? Well, you know, they were rebooting everything from 20 years ago, 25 years ago, so why not continue <laughs> the trend with uh, a 90s cult classic of action, uh, Face Off? This, this is that kind of action movie. Reminds me of things like The Rock or, you know, Judge Dredd, Demolition Man. It was, it's really, really 90s style action. Lots of shooting, lots of style, lots of overacting by our, our main stars. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprisingly excited about this. If you haven't seen Face Off yet, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's available on some streaming services, and I'm currently trying to figure out which, so stand by, but... Uh, Face Off's tremendous. It is a ton of fun. Uh, it is some top-tier Nick Cage. It is some really good Nick Cage. And then John Travolta acting like Nick Cage, which is arguably even better. And I know that makes a lot of the movie, but for what it's worth, it's a simple premise. It's kind of interesting. And I think it's got some reboot potential if you can find the right stars. I think that's important. So we were talking about this earlier. Who would be good Face Off uh, contenders? Uh, any, any suggestions since we went over them? Uh, I think that the one I think you should go with the two you came up with because I think that's a really good one. I didn't come up with anything good. Yeah. Uh, so what I had suggested was Daniel Kaluuya, uh, from Get Out, the protagonist in that movie, and John David Washington from uh, uh, Black Klansman. Yeah, and the yeah. new Christopher Nolan film. That would be super cool because those guys are both great and seem to have a lot of range. Definitely Daniel Kaluuya. I'm not quite sure about John David Washington because he's kind of new to the whole scene, but I think they'd be a really cool fit. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya's got that great, like, kind of crazy eye look. Yeah. He can get down. He had it in Widows, and it was fantastic. Uh, I, I I don't know, though. I'd be interested to see what direction <laughs> they go in. You know what? I'd like to uh, do the female version of this. Ooh, okay. Hold on. <laughs> Margot Robbie. Version. Margot Robbie's Ooh, in there. Samara Weaving. No. Uh, you could go Kristen Wiig and um, I forget the name of the other one that I'm thinking of, but... Yeah, like there's certainly potential, right? There's a lot you could yeah. do. But but part of the, the magic of this is John Woo's like style. Like this movie is so stylistic. Like, you know, uh, the main protagonist, uh, Castro Troy, I think, has you know, these big gold guns and his, like, his jacket is kind of like a cape and there's these, they have a shootout in slow motion to somewhere over the rainbow with doves flying it everywhere. John Woo was a big fan of releasing doves in action scenes. Uh, So that's really the magic of this movie. So I'd be interesting to see how they update it because that that style of action definitely is a a product of its time and would not work today. So I'd like to see what what they would do. Yeah, the uh, the kung fu director approach definitely uh, is not is not lost on either of us. As co- according to JustWatch.com, Face Off is not actually available on any streaming services. You can rent it on any of the rentals though for like three bucks. So if you haven't seen it yet, I would highly recommend it. It is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's not it's not incredible, but like it's 
you know, it's it's quality cage if that's what you're looking for, and sometimes that's what you need. Uh, our next story: Netflix and Amazon movies are barred from the Toronto International Film Fest industry screening venue once again. Streaming services are not allowed to compete on the same level as theatrical releases because reasons. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, so this story just came out. Uh, is either today or yesterday? And yes, and it's it's important to distinct. This is not the Toronto. Uh, film festival decision they are not in any way discriminating against streaming services it is a distributor or a a theater chain uh owned by scotiabank theaters called cineplex and they have said that uh tiff titles that respect the traditional theatrical model may play on scotia scotiabank theater screens the traditional theatrical model aka people that can't adjust to changing times uh (laughs) so there's still the, those Amazon and, and Netflix films are still being screened uh, at other chains, but this one, and this is kind of like the biggest chain, I guess, there in in Toronto. So it's it's a big deal, but it's just more elitism that we seem to find every year around this time. Yeah, um, you know, when you talk about being kind of behind the times uh it's difficult for me to disagree with that i mean just doing this show we come across streaming films all the time the first movie we're talking about this week is a streaming film last week we did the trailer park and we talked about three upcoming films that we're excited about and all of them are streaming films like this is the way it's going right this is the theatrical films are starting to go the way of the buffalo i think there will always be a place for the silver screen but award ceremonies and specifically distributors and people who are deciding what films will and won't be screened need to get on board with that i get it's frustrating i get you're a theater chain and you don't want to give service to netflix and amazon and the people who are basically putting you out of business but like that's not their fault it's not Netflix's fault that people want to stay home and watch movies, okay? People always wanted to stay home and watch movies. Netflix yeah. is catering to a service people want. And and if they're going to put good movies on there that are worthy of awards, that should be honored regardless of where they're screened. Yes, ex- yeah, you're exactly right. And there's an interesting uh, thing in this article that says if this keeps happening, because we've seen it happen at other film festivals, eventually these streamers are just going to do their own film festival. And they're going to lock, not necessarily lock other people out, but they're going to be just scooping up the talent themselves. And so they're just helping them. They're just hurting, helping to drive themselves out of business or out out of relevancy. Because right. as soon as Netflix and Amazon team up and do some sort of streaming, streaming awards or streaming film festival, it, it it's going to be a whole new a whole new level. It's going to be a whole new thing. And the, these guys that just insist on, you have to go see a, a movie in a theater. And I love the theatrical experience as much as the, the next pop person, but you got to change with the times. Yeah, I agree. Uh, looking at the article, it doesn't look like Toronto International Film Festival has necessarily weighed in one way or the other. Uh, it does look like they're kind of just rolling with this. They're not exactly going to bat for Netflix and Amazon. So, if you want to read between the lines on that, you can, uh, but keep it here on Offscript for more for stories like this of people who aren't cool with streaming movies. And speaking of streaming, our last story this week, Apple has set their price and launch date for their TV streaming service, Apple Plus. I'm very excited to hear about this. Andy, you found this story. I actually haven't read this uh, much at all, so if you don't mind, please, uh, what's what's up? Yeah, so uh, Apple had their, their big uh, kind of fall conference that they have every year where they announced the new iPhone and new changes and things like that. And part of what they did is give finally give some details about their new streaming service. So Apple TV Plus will not launch on November 1st, which is ahead of Disney. It will cost $5 a month, which is $2 less than Disney, which will be 7 
Also, if you purchase an Apple device, you will get a year's uh, of Apple TV Plus for free. So if you buy, and this is specifically for iPhones, iPads, and uh, Apple TV devices, as well as possibly... I think it will also be available on things like Roku. Um, so those are the hot details. It's coming in cheaper and earlier than Disney Plus. They're trying to jump ahead and they're trying to get people on board, uh, you know, to try to tie in their devices to it as well. So that's kind of what's going on. Man, I'm so split on this one because I'm going to be honest. On the one hand, I don't think I need Apple Plus. There's nothing currently on their slate that makes me think, man, I've got to get this. On the other hand, when I get a new iPhone in like a year, because every couple of years you're probably getting one if you're an iPhone user, like it's going to be hard not to sign up for a year. I'm sure it'll just come on the iPhone or free or something. It's going to be tough to ignore that. And whenever your subscription rolls back around, you'll probably keep paying for it. And before you know it, it will just be a part of your life. And it's $60 a year. It's tough not to let that happen. That's way cheap. That is very cheap. You could get that in Disney Plus and still play less than one Netflix subscription. So, yeah. like, on the one hand, I don't need this. On the other hand, like, man, if they start to fill out their library a little bit more, and who knows, if some other shows start winning awards, it might be worth checking out because it's cheap enough to try. The barrier for entry is low enough. Yeah, I'm personally, I, I'm pass is my uh, my feelings. I, there's so many streaming uh, companies already now, and I'm really looking forward to Disney Plus. I'm impressed with their library. I'm not impressed by any of the shows and and what they're going to have. Yes, they've they've scooped up a lot of top talent, but it's also just it, it's oversaturated. And there's only so much time in the day. There's only so much TV or film I'm I'm really capable of watching. And I mean, you could tell me Game of Thrones is going to be on here, and I'm still not going to get it because. I have too many streaming services. I'm looking to get Disney Plus and probably and cut one, maybe two other ones. So this is going to be a pass for me. Yeah, and like I said, I think I'm in the same boat. It just comes down to the library. What are you offering that I can't get anywhere else? And, like, some of these shows look cool. The Morning Show with Steve Carell and Reese Witherspoon and Jen Brunson. That looks like that's going to be their big headliner. That looks cool. Oprah's involved in this. Uh, You know, Kumal Nanjani, M. Night Shyamalan has got a project in here. Spielberg has something going on. There's only some names I'm interested in, but unless these shows, like really start blowing out of the park like start winning emmys and we're talking like hbo quality stuff i'm probably not going to check it out and i think of hbo when i look at this right i pay for hbo and like man every month i think about cutting that and there's always like one thing on there that brings me back there's yeah, always same. one one show i stick around for and that's it that's how thin that margin of success is you just need something good and for five dollars a month i'm not sure you're gonna have it so we'll see I'm not yeah. going to jump on at first, right? Neither are you, so... Yeah, that's that's going to be uh, the, kind of the big difference. And, you know, the thing is, you can buy up all the talent, but the, the, th- the thing is, everyone is doing that. So, you know, if you have... If there's five or six streaming services and they all have a show that you just got to watch, like, I'm just, I'm just not going to watch that much TV or all those shows. I'm just going to say, well, sorry, I'm not watching that. You know, a lot of people have said that maybe Game of Thrones was the last, like big piece of American TV that the whole country was going to agree to watch Um, (laughs) because there's just so much, uh, there's too much to choose from now. Yeah, I agree. And with that, Apple Plus, uh, you know, we'll we'll, we'll have some kind of passing review or something, I'm sure. I'd be interested to see how it comes out when we launch. And really, we haven't talked about it, but I'll be interested to see how you and I cover these new streaming services on this show, if we do it all. You know, is it worth doing some kind of, like, mini review? 
on Apple Plus and Disney Plus to see how it functions and if it's worth people's time, or is this a movie show? I don't know yet. I'll wait for Disney to give me a check, and then we'll... There you go. Well, <laughs> then we can of, talk. Right, slip us a sponsorship, Disney. Uh, slide us a resume. We'll see what we think. And speaking of streaming content, we should talk about our first film of the show. Andy, you've graciously agreed to take the summary on this. I figured you'd take it, too, so I'm excited to talk about that no. when it comes to I my not to t- I try not to take all the good stuff. That's very sweet of you. That really, that's very big of you because you could, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't fight you on it. Uh, please take it away. Late night. Who are you? I'm Molly. Mm-hmm. I'm a new writer. You want to sit down? Okay. That's for metal sits. Could you sit down, please? Oh, I'll just use uh, this trash can. There's, you know, there's hardly any trash in it at all. Oh, it's kind of comfortable, better than a chair. So this is the latest uh, comedy drama dramedy from Amazon Prime. It was released in the summer had a theatrical release it did not do well just like every comedy release this summer didn't do very well um so but it's on amazon prime now if you have that that service um the story is it stars emma thompson as late night show host Catherine newberry she's uh an older english woman she has the show in the vein of people like jimmy fallon and jimmy kimmel david letterman these these types of people uh she's had the show for 20 25 years she's a hit she's a household name but the show is in decline its ratings are falling and this is going to be her last season and she herself she's uh you know I'm trying to think of of words not derogatory. She's a tough boss, you know. She <laughs> she she doesn't take <laughs> she yeah. doesn't she doesn't uh, she's not sympathetic to her writing staff. She fires people on a whim. She's very blunt. She's very British that way. But the show is in decline, and they need some new life. They end up hiring a uh, newcomer, new aspiring writer and comic uh, Molly Patel, played by Mindy Kaling, who. Works in a factory, but won some sort of essay writing competition where she got to choose to meet an executive and then kind of weaseled her way into applying for this job, this writing job on the show. So she's new. She's new blood. She's one. She's the only woman on stat in a room full of writers. Um, she's plucky. She has a lot of energy. She's really blunt, but she also is new. She doesn't have the experience she doesn't quite have she's good but she's not great and uh so she brings a lot of energy to the role and so the rest of the movie is about her personality and emma thompson working together with clashes and with other storylines to make the show better to work to understand each other and there's you know some other kind of socially progressive messages in there as well so that's the setup zach what did you think I actually liked this movie. Um, It's not my favorite uh, because it's got a handful of problems. And really the biggest problem, I think, is its scope. It just tries to do too much. And it tries to have too many messages in one, like, two-hour film. Uh, It either should have been longer. Content should have been pared down. They should have kind of cut stuff out. Um or maybe it should have been just some something more long form because I think ultimately the messages this movie has are all important, but it's too much to cram into one film. It's very vocal. Uh, it, it has a lot to say. And I want to talk about what that is and kind of break down what works and what doesn't. But sure, ultimately, sure. I did like this movie. Andy, what did you think? 
I didn't really <laughs> like it. So it's supposed to be, you know, a comedy, and there's very few laughs. Very, very few laughs. There's a lot of jokes that don't land. And it's one thing to not have jokes. It's another thing to have jokes and then just not be funny. So there is a lot of that. I do think it works better as a drama. There are some really touching moments between uh, Molly and Catherine, and Catherine has a very touching relationship with her husband, played by John Lithgow. Um, and, and again, there's some other messaging about like how you treat your workers and representation in the workplace. Uh, I agree with you. There, there's a little bit too much going on in this movie. Um, and yeah, it just, it wasn't funny and the pacing was kind of off. The drama was really good and the, the performances were really good. I thought Mindy Kaling is, is good with, and she's the writer. Um, right. She wrote the film. Uh, I thought she was really good. I thought Emma Thompson was was really good um, as far as performances. But the narrative is just, it's not super engaging and it's not funny enough. And when you have comedies flopping and you look at this, you know, people are going to say, well, that's why it's not funny. But that's been a problem through the whole summer because Booksmart was hilarious and, you know, it was also a flop. So let's start with the performances, right? I think that's the best place to start. And we'll get to kind of the themes towards the end of this because I think that's the most convoluted part of this conversation. So let's start about start with what works in this movie. Uh, this movie has a really good cast. A really good cast for an Amazon film. Emma Thompson as the lead is Catherine Newbery. Mindy Colling is kind of the secondary uh, Molly Patel. John Lithgow plays her husband. Hugh Dancy is in this film as a writer. Also, Reed Scott from Veep is in this. Dennis O'Hare. Uh, Ike Barinholtz is in this film, the comedian. You also get Bill Maher in a very small part. And Seth Meyers in a very small part as himself, but a little bit more so. Um, for what it's worth, pretty pretty well put together. And I enjoyed the performances. Emma Thompson, especially, is fantastic as Catherine Newberry, this kind of hard-nosed woman who's had to work her way up to where she's at in television and as the only late-night television host doesn't take any shit. And, like, I respect that. And she, she kind of <laughs> commands that respect from people. And she's smart and she's funny and she's quick as a whip. And, like, I loved her in this role. Mindy Colling is this kind of innocent girl, but also has a similar kind of approach to her life. She's willing to work to do whatever she can to get out of this chemical plant she's in and and do what do what it takes to, to, to get ahead in life while also being, like, true to herself and, and, and doing the right thing and ultimately teaching people around her, especially in the writer's room in the film, to be bigger people. Um, so that's important. And, and like, I thought those two performances were really good and, and everybody else was, you know, pretty acceptable as well. What'd you think? Right. They, they work really well as this odd couple uh, because Catherine Newberry is obvious. She's British. She's tall. She's white. She's wealthy. She's famous. And then you have Mindy Kaling, who's, she lives with her, like, aunt and uncle in, in a room in Queens. And, like, she has a long commute. And she's, like, clearly, like, a working class person and so they come from different ends of this of spectrum and that's they and that's kind of their they're powered together because they they can kind of bring in their diverse experiences and make each other better improve each other um and and their their roles i mean they're basically playing themselves especially mindy kaling um, probably not so much emma thompson uh <laughs> but they yeah i mean they are the highlight of the, this movie they're their roles are really well, I think. And I think their characters are written well. It's just like the narrative itself is not. Right. So dipping into the narrative a little bit, right? The writing, like you said, that's where that's where it really struggles. Um, primarily, this film is built around 
Catherine Newberry, right? Her character played by Emma Thompson, uh, and her struggle to save her show and having to work with a room full of all male writers and her one new female writer to figure out what hasn't been working in this late night television show and how they can pivot to make things work. And how they do that is by embracing things that are viral, the internet, social media, right? Trying to make your show a meme and make it cool. And that's all well and good, but like, it's, it's, it's just kind of a story I think we're a little familiar with. Like, oh, I got to make my show, my thing trendy and cool for other people to like it. And, and somehow I can still be true to myself and my own morals while doing that. Yeah. Um, it just feels a little, I don't want to say unrealistic, but like just kind of fairy tale esque. Like I wish yes. that was the way the world it works, but it kind of isn't. And, and, and as the movie takes kind of dips and dives at one point, uh, Mindy Collins job is brought into question. And even though realistically she would be fired under any, any, any guise of reality somehow in this movie, it works out and she doesn't really get fired and it's totally okay. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not how late night television works at all. Like you would. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's just, there's this standard that's held up for some characters, but not others out of convenience for the plot. And in a movie like this and in kind of a dramedy that's supposed, it's supposed to be funny. I think it's acceptable, but it just rings a little hollow when you're trying to have a very real message and your movie isn't as real as it could be. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, that I definitely. Very but yeah, I definitely start thinking about like the logistics of of things and how things actually work in the workplace. You know, regardless of industry and you know how it's generally harder to hire and fire people than they make it seem on the show. It's just like, oh, you're hired. Oh, you're fired. It's just kind of at the drop of the hat on both ways. That that definitely takes me out of it. It loses the kind of that element of realism when and it's like you said, the whole thing is largely fairy tale feeling on both ends both in Mindy Kaling's uh, kind of rise into this position and up through being you know competing with the other writers and then also with just the show itself coming from declining ratings to it's a hit we're saved <laughs> yeah. you know yeah it's it the, all worked uh, out it's yeah. the equivalent of like the 80s movie of like oh we got to come up with 50 grand to save the whatever Yes. Yeah. We we got we all got to chip in and 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 save the the local clubhouse or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like it that's particularly damning for this film because I think this film has so many real themes that it's trying to kind of convey. In fact, probably too many, but we'll talk about that in a minute. This movie addresses a, a lot of things, right? I say talk about it in a minute, we're talking about it right now. Uh this movie addresses women in the workplace and feminism as being a professional when you're trying to work your way up. It addresses uh, like sexism in the workplace, especially racism is another big problem. Mindy Colling is of course Indian and that is, uh, you know, juggled accordingly throughout this film. At one point she's referred to as a diversity hire. Um, And, and like it, it, it tries to adjust it, like address ageism. It it addresses uh, uh, sexual misconduct and, and doing things in the public eye that are particularly embarrassing and how you recover from that. It, it's got a problem with men working with women or against them. Like, it, it, it tries to do a lot. It tries to do a lot. And this movie is 102 minutes long. Yeah. That's it. Like, it's just too much. And that was the problem. In fact, really, I would argue, this movie is trying to juggle two plots. Uh, Emma Thompson trying to shave her show and Mindy Colling trying to work her way up. Like, those are two different movies, easily. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But it just kind of slams them together, and they try to make make up for it in editing, and ultimately you just get two characters that feel like you don't really get to know either well enough, um, and that hurt it, I think. Yeah, so there there is a lot of progressive messaging in here, which is a good thing, but I don't think it was necessarily executed in a very effective way. As a person of color, I'm very you know conscious about things like representation in in the workplace. And uh, I just felt like it was really heavy handed and kind of ham fisted. And I mean, a lot of it kind of made me cringe, like some of the jokes or some of the, the uh, times that they bring up these progressive mages messages made me feel a little bit cringy and uncomfortable. Um, so it, it's just not a real effective way to go about it. it like I said, I, I'm glad that those messages are in there. I think they just could have been done in a better way. Yeah, and there's this kind of element of forgiveness in there. There's some characters who do some things that are not okay, and and they're forgiven in one way or another. Um, and some of those feel okay, and others don't. There's a couple plot lines that are brought up and then just straight up dropped in the film. Mm-hmm. I watched it with Christine, and I asked her at the at when when the movie hit the credits and we were talking about it. I said, "Hey, what happened to this one character?" And she's like, "Oh." Um, well, this must have happened. I was like, right, but did they address that in the film? She says, no. I'm like, so nothing. They were just dropped. Like, they just don't yeah. come back into the movie. Like, it's just strange. And I don't know if they lost it in the editing room. Like, okay, well, this scene doesn't really work. We should just cut it or whatever. But, like, if it should have either tried to narrow its scope and do less, or, and this is the case I've made from it for it from the get-go, this, this should have been, like, a 12-episode series, or like a six episode mini series or something and tell this story over like six hours. Like that is the way to do this. You can handle your characters much more fluidly and kind of hand off the plot from one to another. And you could really like get to know this relationship. These two women are kind of cultivating in the film and ultimately like root for them. Instead it's 102 minutes. It's so fast. It's like Mm -hmm. blinking. You miss it kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I I think, I think the better way to tell the story would have been, longer make it longer and put in more especially with a cast like this what do you think uh you know honestly to me it, it felt too long uh but that's <laughs> but that's just because i didn't feel yeah. like like the, the narrative was particularly compelling or believable and yeah, it was a lot of predictability and paint by number so that's why i just i i wasn't into it and wasn't interested so it felt long to me because it just i just wasn't engaged in the film yeah I, and i think ultimately it's endearing like, it's very endearing. It, it really does have a lot to say about, like, the current status you know, of, of American workplace culture, you know, and, and women in the workplace and people of color in the workplace and opportunity, you know, and people who have, have, are comfortable with their jobs versus people who really want to work there. And, like, th- there's a lot going on in this movie. And for that, I think I really do think it's worth a watch. But, like, you're, you're going to come at it one of two ways. Either it's not enough or it's too much. And I'm not sure either is the wrong way to feel with a script like this. So mm-hmm. I, I ultimately, I don't know. I guess I'll get to ultimately when we get to recommendations. But any other thoughts on this one? Music or color or cinematography or? No. <laughs> I know. It's all just kind of standard. I, I Nothing was particularly bad. Yeah, I, I was. on original. Yeah, nothing was particularly incredible. I was um, really surprised that it got a theatrical release because it doesn't have the heft that a theatrical release should have. No. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't quite have that. Like, 
I don't know. There's, there's a certain something. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I just don't quite have that feeling. Uh, if anything stood out, the studio in which they write and film the show in downtown New York, that was kind of neat. I like the the, the late yeah, night set scope. that Catherine Newberry's on. Yeah, they've got a little band over on the side with her name on the drum and a couple chairs and like that was kind of cool. It definitely felt small. I was like, no, no late night set is this small. They're all much bigger than this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was like visually supposed to be a metaphor for her being treated different. I'm not sure what that was supposed to be. Uh, maybe they didn't have the room to shoot a full set. Um, that was kind of neat other than that like it was just kind of standard millennial office workplace uh no, nothing about it really jumped out at me um i don't know yeah i I'm, I'm conflicted on this one but that's probably a good place to go for recommendations so yeah uh, andy would you recommend late night i'm gonna say pass um it 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 was um it wasn't funny and it was supposed to be a comedy uh that's what i i had understood it was and it was much more of a drama comedy uh the drama was good i I did think that was okay it just the narrative lost me i wasn't excited about it i didn't laugh i you know i got bored i wanted to play on my phone uh so (laughs) Uh, so for me, it's a it's a swing and a miss, and I would say I would it's the kind of thing if I th- if I saw it in theater, I would say save for streaming. But since I since I saw it streaming, I don't know what to say other yeah. than just don't. <laughs> uh, I would say it's worth a watch, um, but only for a particular kind of audience. In the same way that if we were recommending an action film that was just all out action, I'd say yeah, it's 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 good if you like action. This is similar if you're looking for fem- w- films about female empowerment uh, or or um, people of color kind of struggling to fit in the workplace or just too many dudes in the workplace and need, need a change up. Like, I think this movie's probably for you. And while it probably won't be something you watch again and again, it will probably be a once a watch and then you won't come back to it. Like, it's okay. Like I said, the performances are pretty good. They're not outstanding. It, it's it's by no means an outstanding film, and it tries to say too much. Um, but I think the things it tries to say are said with enough gumption to make it worth hearing. So that's what I think about Late Night. That's what Andy thinks about Late Night. Uh, we should move on to our next segment. Uh, we are going to be talking about some new films coming out this September and October. It's not quite the trailer park but, you know, there's just some things to keep an eye out. Things we'll be keeping an eye out for in the show. Hopefully, you'll be hearing reviews about them coming up shortly. So, Andy, you put this whole thing together. I think you said you want to start, or should I start you're, in September? Yeah, you're starting in September. I'm so sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Quite, the, quite the co-host here. Yes, uh, I am going to be going over all of September. Here are some movies coming out. It's not everything coming out, but some things that are worth watching. And then Andy's going to hit October. We'll move, we'll move on to it too after that. So this September, some movies you want to keep an eye out for in the second week, just coming up next week, the goldfinch starring Ansel Elgort based on the Pulitzer prize winning book and hustlers, which actually we're going to be watching next week. Spoiler alert. So keep an eye out for that or an ear out for that next week. Uh, that next week after we're going to be looking at Downton Abbey, the film. Uh, I don't think either of us have watched a, an episode of no, the show. Definitely not. So we'll probably pass on it, but I bet my mom's stoked to hear it. So hi mom. Uh, Rambo last blood. Yes. The final Rambo film featuring <laughs> it, old town road. My little ass, uh, will be coming out and at, ad Astra at Ad Astra. <laughs> at Astra is what at I Astra is going to be coming out uh, starring Brad Pitt in a space 
epic, I hope, certainly some kind of sci-fi film. Mm. And then the last week of September, Abominable, which I'm going to guess is not about an animated Yeti. It is 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 about an animated Yeti. Okay, great. I knew (laughs) that one. Awesome. Uh, Starring Channing Tatum, I think, in the lead. Don't know. As the Abominable Yeti. Uh, 21 Bridges, which I actually don't remember. Um, Uh, So this is a, it's a cop drama starring um, uh, CNN. Sorry, Sienna Miller, Taylor Kiss, J.K. Simmons, and uh, oh, who plays to ch- Who's the Black Panther? I can't remember his name now. Um, uh, oh no, it, Chadwick Boseman. Duh. Chadwick he's on, Boseman. He's on, he's on the poster. Um, <laughs> he's great. Yeah. So we anyways, both knew he that. so he plays a, a disgraced detective in the NYPD is given a shot at redemption. That's the uh, thing, and it has to do with this plot about there's a. Uh, they're trying to lock down Manhattan, so they cut off all the bridges, and there's 21 bridges, so that's why it, that's why it's it's called that. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. And then the last movie is Judy, which is going to be on Netflix, which is the story of Judy Garland 30 years after The Wizard of Oz, uh, when she, Judy Garland, arrives in London to perform a sold-out show at a nightclub um, for like a month, and when she's there, she reminisces about her life, and uh, Garland's supposed to be played by Renee Zellweger. I'm actually really excited to see this movie. Uh, I, I'm a, a closet sucker for Judy Garland, I should say. I think her story's really captivating, and I'm interested to see what Renee Zellweger's up to. It's been a hot minute since I saw a Bridget Jones film, so I can't wait to see what she's got <laughs> yeah. going on. Sure, sure. So that's September. Uh, definitely some cool stuff coming out. A couple things I think we're going to see. I'm very excited for October, though. Andy, please give it away. Yes, as am I. It's uh, we we we. <laughs> sorry, we're not doing Spooktober, at least not yet. Not yet. Um, but there are some big releases. October fourth, probably the one I'm looking forward to most uh, this year is Joker, the uh, Todd Phillips uh, solo Joker film starring Walking uh, Phoenix, Zazie Beetz, Rob, Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro. I am so stoked for this movie. It's r- ridiculous. I just, I love the look of it and I don't even know what it's going to be about. A new trailer came out and we got to see more footage, but you know, we didn't get any kind of details about plot or any of that. So I, I'm really excited about that. Um, I, uh, the new Pedro Almodovar film, a uh, Spanish director, Mexican director, uh, called Pain and Glory, starring Antonio Banderas. Um, I don't really know a lot what this is about, but apparently it's it's very, very good. I've heard lots of, of good things about it, um, just from other film festivals. So that's uh, October 4th. Jumping to the next week, October 11th, is Gemini Man, which is the Will Smith uh, action film directed by Ang Lee, where he fights... A, a, a younger version of himself and they're obviously showing off some de-aging uh, technology uh, as well. Also, the Adams Family animated film comes out that week, so that, that'll be good for the uh, for the kids, for the family. Uh, and something that I'm looking forward to is uh, a film called Parasite by a director uh, Jun Ho Bong, who uh, is a Korean director who has also directed, um, I think, what was it? Uh, we watched a couple of his of his films on here. Oh, anyway, man. You keep going. I'll look it yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, this, so this film is about uh, this kind of unemployed working class family who kind of weasels their way into the life of this wealthy family. And um, th- I've heard nothing but good things. I watched the trailer. It looks spectacular. And it's one of these things like, I, I just can't wait f- to see it. I don't really know a lot about it, uh, but I've heard tons of buzz. Uh, so be on the lookout for Parasite uh, this fall. Uh, the following 
October, not October, the following week, um, October 18th, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which is the follow-up to the first Maleficent movie from a few years ago. Um, I'm not really interested in it. It's another live action <laughs> Disney throwaway, which I'm sure will make a lot of money. What I am looking forward to, though, is Zombieland Devil Tap, which is the uh, sequel to the t- 2009 film uh, starring Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin, Bill Murray, w- Woody Harrelson, and... Oh, I'm blanking. <laughs> Not Aaron Taylor Johnson. Who's the other guy? Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, <laughs> See, now you're blanky, too. Why oh, God. Hold on a second. Day? Yeah, who is this clown? It's not Michael Sarah. Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, Jesse my God. Eisenberg. Yes. Um, also, um, this is probably going to be a smaller re- release, but uh, Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, um, which is kind of a weird film. I've seen some uh, a couple of trailers for this, and it it deals with the Hitler youth. This is a comedy, by the way. Uh, this boy <laughs> who's in like the Hitler youth and has an imaginary friend who is Hitler himself. Um, and I believe it is a story about, about the evils of, you know, prejudice and the Nazis. Uh, but I think some people are having a real problem having, uh, you know, seeing Hitler on screen in, <laughs> in this way, that might be a problem. Uh, the following, or actually, uh, also that that week is the that's li- a big week yeah yeah also the lighthouse oh, which, is, the which lighthouse. i which i know that zach is really looking forward to i'm looking forward to it as well that's the uh the next film by director robert eggers who also dir- directed the witch um as starring willem dafoe and robert pattinson and finally uh last week in october not a whole lot uh black and blue which is another uh qu- cop drama and the aeronauts which is uh netflix or amazon prime film starring felicity jones and eddie redmayne as uh looks a little bit like around the world in 80 days kind of things they're they're in a balloon they're going around the world something like that not a not a huge huge release but october is going to be huge uh for films for sure yeah, there's a lot going on. I'm definitely excited about Joker in the early October. And I'm going to be honest, I'd seen the final trailer, but like I watched it on my phone. And then in front of it too, which we're going to talk about in just a second, they ran it again. It looks so much cooler actually sitting in a theater. Oh, absolutely. Like it's so much more dynamic. I was like, okay, no, I'm actually really stoked to see this movie. Like I was excited before, but now I'm, I'm definitely on the hype train. Uh, Christine's really stoked about Adam's family, which like mixed bag. <laughs> I know we're probably not going to watch it for this show, but it is what it is. And uh, October 18th, the weekend with Maleficent, Zombieland 2, Jojo Rabbit, and the Lighthouse. I know if I could pick any two out of there, one of them wouldn't be Zombieland, but I know you want to see that movie. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll shake out something. We could at least make up for it in the last weekend of October with black and blue and the aeronauts. I'm sure we'll have time to see something else. So mm-hmm. uh, overall, man, October seems really cool. September seems middling at best. But if anything, we're out of the driest summer in Hollywood history, it feels like. Thank God, and we're getting August was rough. Releases. August was August rough. was rough, man. Rough around the edges. With that, we should probably get to the final film of the show. The movie is It, Chapter Two. To the losers. We made an oath. I swear. 
27 years after the events of IT Chapter 1, the Losers Club has grown up and older when they receive a mysterious call from one of their former friends in the town of Derry, Maine, where they're from, telling them to come home because Pennywise the Clown is back and he's looking to kill again. The gang reunites to stop the beast and uh, ultimately find out what's behind the makeup of IT and, uh, I don't know, overcome evil through the power of friendship, I guess. Yeah. So that's the summary for <laughs> IT Chapter 2. Uh, Andy, what did you think of the movie? So there's a ton to kind of uh, talk about with this. It's a massive thing. It is just short of three hours. And I don't know what it's been. Lately, we've been watching all these three-hour epics. Um, it is a huge movie. It has a huge cast. It's big in scope. You know, it it is running back between two timelines because we get to see some uh some kind of holes filled in in from when they're kids and again jumping to their older selves as well as uh, you know it's a lot of people to keep up with and you know some of the themes are still there we also have some new ones introduced we also have a plenty of pennywise you know it's a horror movie we got scares the kind of mythology of it has to be developed there is a lot going on here a lot of it works a lot of it I'm not gonna say a lot of it. Some of it doesn't. It's not. I don't think it's quite as good as the first film. I think the first film is excellent and it's written really tightly and it, it's just it's a great coming of age film. And there's a lot of things that you lose, not for the fault of the film, but just as I think some things just don't work as well when adults are doing them. Um, but there's a lot to unpack. So let's get into it. Uh, well, I'm gonna be honest. I liked this movie. I didn't like it as much as the first one. And yep. in the age of, of reboots and sequels and prequels and all kinds of follow-up films, that's probably something you've heard before. But I think this one has a pretty specific reason why, and I want to dig into that. Now, I do think it's important with a horror film, especially uh, one like this, to kind of probably go in fresh, right? Uh, Andy, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I guess at this point, I'm not going to say we're getting into spoilers, because I, I, we don't really do spoilers in this show, but... I think for something like this, kind of going in with a rough idea, really no idea of the tone and the mood and what you're about to get into, helps the experience. I think uh, hearing our review might, might tint the glasses, really, for you going in. So if you don't want that, I hate to say stop listening, maybe skip ahead for the end of the show. Otherwise, let's dig into it too, right? right. Uh, You know, not necessarily spoiling the plot, but spoiling our opinions of it. Um... First place to start, I guess, the follow-up, right? We're picking up 27 years after the original. We have a series of characters that are replacing younger characters in the film. What'd you think? The cast. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, this is a great, great cast. Uh, Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader. Um, you couldn't ask for, for more. I mean, you'd be lucky to get one of these people, much less all three, and then the, who they have to fill out the rest of, of the Losers Club. And we see them kind of uh falling into similar patterns uh when we see um eddie who is the kind of hypochondriac from from the first film he's married a woman that's very similar to his mother when we see meet jessica chastain she's married a man similar to her father you know so there's this idea of like cyclical the kind of cycles of, of violence that that come up um james mcavoy is a writer um he's like working on set you know he's he's famous he's made it but you know he can't figure out how to end a lot of his book there's a whole criticism out there which i mean he's essentially a foil for 
Stephen King himself. Uh, it's just the same kind of idea. So, but we we catch this excellent cast, but kind of in similar situations that they were when we first met them twenty seven years ago. Yeah, and, and I think they're filled out really well. Like you said, Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader. Uh, did you mention Isaiah Mustafa? He's probably one not, worth mentioning. Yes. Yeah, uh, he plays Mike. Uh, he is the guy from the Old Spice commercials. Yes. Who I remember hearing about him being cast and thinking, huh, that sounds goofy. But he put on a few pounds for the role. So he's not exactly like husky or anything, but it's a little harder to tell. The mustache is shaved. Uh, and he's great in this movie. Uh, Jay Ryan is kind of the standout. He's a... Uh, Australia, New Zealand actor who's been done a lot of television, and he comes in as Ben in kind of a bait and switch role at the beginning, the the, the kind of the fat chubby kid from the previous film. Ah, uh, right. And yeah. James Ransone, who plays Eddie, right? He picks up for what was probably the breakout role of the kids in the previous film, uh, the hypochondriac kid who talks really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was previously in Generation Kill. It's the last thing I remember him being in. He's fantastic in this movie, and I doubt he'll get any recognition for it, but man, he picks up that role so great. Like, he's got the energy of that kid, and he talks just like he did, and he's got the same kind of cadence and humor, and like, he does a really good job, I feel like, of of being this kind of cowardly man who ultimately has to overcome his fears, right, in, in a way maybe bigger than most of the other characters and, and do well. Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise returns, who's tremendous, just like the previous film. A few other characters kind of scattered throughout. But ultimately, uh, yeah, I thought they did a really good job. Um, there were a lot of flashbacks to the kids previous, and they had a lot of the children from the previous films return to film that stuff. They had to do some de-aging on them, because the difference between 12 and 14 for these kids is huge. Uh, so they yeah. had to kind of do some do some trickery. But if you haven't seen the film in a year, if you haven't seen the last one, I think it works. I heard some people say, oh, it doesn't work at all. And I'm like, well, you just saw I didn't notice film. it. Like, yeah, I, I, like, just I didn't thought notice. they had... Yeah, I just thought they had filmed it at the same time, knowing that they were going to do a sequel. Yeah, and, and I think every every older version character does a great job of filling the shoes of the younger version character. The only one that stood out to me as odd was James McAvoy, because he kind of adopts a stutter as the film goes on, implying that he's like, I don't know, it's, it's coming back to him being a kid and the stutter he'd gotten over. But like, man, I don't know if it was just watching Split that like r- might have ruined James McAvoy for me, or like maybe him playing professor Xavier in the X-Men films, but like, I just can't see he's just James McAvoy. Now I'm just like, Oh, Hey, it's James McAvoy doing it. Yeah. Acting. Like, look at, <laughs> look at him acting like a character. Like split really ruined me. That I feel way. like he couldn't get his accent down his, his American accent. Like, no, consistent. it was kind like, of all over the place. I remember seeing him in wanted back in the day and thinking he was like incredible and a breakout star. And now I see him and I'm just like, Oh yeah, there's James McAvoy. Like he's too much of a character actor now, or something, and like I can't, I can't see through that. And Bill Hader's the same way, but like Bill Hader's funny and like charismatic, and like I don't know, it just comes across a little bit better, I guess. So I, I, I kind of struggled with that. Let's talk about our, our, our kind of setting, right? Dairy, twenty-seven years after the previous film. Uh, go ahead. Right, we're so we we find ourselves coming back to you know the gangs getting together and. This interesting thing has happened where they can't, they don't really remember anything that's happened. They like, and uh, Mike, uh, Isaiah Mustafa's character says, you know, something happens to you when you leave, you 
everything becomes hazy. You forget what happened when you were here. So he's the only one who remembers everything and everyone else has pretty much forgotten that, that summer and that time and, and what happened. So part of them being there is rediscovering kind of parts of themselves and parts of the town. And there's this whole thing that, that I read that part of what Stephen King loves is kind of the mythos of the American small town of being this kind of a city on a hill, ideal i you know ideal city but then having like really dark secrets and in this in Derry's case it's you know pennywise but also things like racism and homophobia that those kinds of kind of more concrete horrors um and then you know it is back it's been confirmed that you know more people are missing and so they have to figure out a way to destroy it they know that they heard it but that he's back and they have to kind of work together to figure out how to de- destroy it yeah I, I i like the way dairy is kind of presented in a more modern setting uh it opens with a, a kind of flashback to how dairy was and then a flash forward to a carnival and it's much more modern you can see the technology and everything like this isn't the 80s anymore it's nowadays uh there's a gay couple featured prominently like it, it's very much like hey this isn't the past anymore this is the future and they do a pretty good job of presenting that the problem I had with Derry in this movie is, like, other than the Losers Club, it's, like, empty. Yeah, there's, there's no like, people. nobody in it. And it doesn't make any... Like, there's no... Like, that's not explained in the film or anything. They just didn't have any extras or something. Like, there there was there was a bit of a feeling of life to old Derry in the previous film, right? Like, Eddie's Eddie's mom, right? She, she was around and, like... The kids had parents, but now that these kids are adults, they don't have anybody to watch them and they don't have anybody to really answer to. Even the ones with like husbands and wives don't, don't actually have to deal with them throughout the film. And, and like the characters hang out in this hotel, the dairy Inn, right? Um, seemingly nobody runs it. Yeah. Every there's scene no one, there's in there, no one there. There is no staff. Like it just, it's just weird. Um, they go to the library. Nobody's there. And like, I remember this in the previous film I was like, there were people at the library. Like maybe, maybe it's, this is supposed to be implied that dairy has been somehow like left behind or maybe all the kids that went missing drove people out of it. But like, it's never explained. There's just nobody around. So it just feels kind of empty. I guess that helps to make it feel creepy. But early in the film, when they go to a Chinese restaurant, that restaurant's like full of people in dairy. So yeah, why, would that make a difference? Uh, did you notice that? Did that bother you at all? Yeah, I, I did see that. And I did think that it felt very empty. Um, one of the things I, was, I wanted to talk about, as far as plot, it's very different from the first film, is we get jumps back and forth in time. We go to uh, 1989 or 1987, whatever it was, and then to the, the present. And we get we get some nice gaps filled in, and I thought this was a very cool thing. There's a part in the first movie where the Losers Club gets into it like a big fight, and then they don't talk to each other for like four or five, six weeks. And so in this film, we get a, uh, a filler in of, of what happened during that time and that how they each kind of still had inner interactions with it. Um, and I thought that was a really cool, I don't know, technique. It was, it was nice to kind of connect the, the two films. Some people have complained about this, but I really liked it. I thought it was, it was a really interesting touch. Yeah, I didn't think it was bad. In fact, if anything, um, there was some clever filmmaking in the transitions from past to present like really clever filmmaking in some spots. It's like, Oh, that's a really cool transition. It wasn't just like a jump cut or wasn't just like a scene change. And there almost never, I think did it pop up at the bottom with like text saying, you know, dairy 1987 or anything like it was just, okay. Now you're in the past. Like you could tell 
by visual storytelling, what was on screen. You could see, okay, now we're in the past, now we're in the present. And that was clever. Um, it's got a little bit of that Back to the Future 2 problem, where, like, clearly you guys didn't plan necessarily to have all of these things shot when these kids were young. Like they're older now. So you have to do some de-aging and stuff, but you don't really notice. I didn't anyway. Like it's, I didn't works. notice at all. Yeah. Um, but just like back to the future too, like I, I wish it had been a little bit more evident in the first film that there was going to be more. I think mm-hmm. the first film stands very self-contained because you don't really know there's going to be a sequel till the end, unless you've read the book. Um, but like in the second film, these callbacks do make it feel like it has to lean hard on previous work where the first film didn't. And I think that does hurt it ultimately, but yeah, yeah. that doesn't that, like, that doesn't mean the flashbacks are bad. They're not poor filmmaking. Like they're just different. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I didn't mind them, I guess. So well, another way that this film is way different from the first, uh, the first one seemed a little bit more grounded, you know, like Pennywise was a representation of different horrors in these kids' lives. In this film, it's more kind of supernatural and kind of more in the realm of fantasy. You know, uh, it is like this being entity thing that they have to defeat and not necessarily a manifest- manifestation of their fear, even though that is part of what it feeds off of. And some things that work really well with kids, I think just don't work well as adults. And I don't think there is a way you could have, because the first film felt so much like, you know, remind me of things like the Goonies, stranger things, uh, you know, that kids on bikes, ET whole thing. And that, I feel like yeah. that just doesn't, it just doesn't work with adults. Like when the kids go, you know, exploring in the caves to find it, you're totally on board and believable, but then when the adults do it, for some reason it just feels like kind of silly and not, not as engaging to me. Yeah. Um, this, this probably is a great time for me to, to really drive, drive my point home of why this film doesn't hold up as well as the previous one. Um, you know, I think, I think in the previous film, there was definitely an element of, of mystery, right? I think any good horror film is going to be intimate. I think any good horror film has to take the real world that we know and introduce a new abstract set of rules. Yeah. And our characters, along with the audience, have to figure that out. How, what is this creepy thing that goes bump in the night? How do we kill it? How does it kill us? Like, you have to learn, right, as you go. That's what's fascinating about a movie like The Thing. Um, you have to figure out how it works. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes that's the mystery, right? But, like, by the end of the first film of It, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Uh, we have a pretty good idea of how Pennywise works. We don't know for sure, but, like, we get the whole, like, feeding on your fear thing. And then in this movie, like, you get a return to that, but, like, we, the audience, kind of know how it works now. And our characters have very conveniently forgotten, which I get was, like, in the book. Like, I get that's not, like, an extension of the film or anything. That's the way King wrote it, so it is what it is. Like, I'm not saying anybody cheated us or anything, but, like, we like we know what's up. You know, like we kind of know how this thing works and they don't. So they have to kind of relearn it. And for us, it's just like, yep, I, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with this setup there. One of them is by themselves and there's some creepy music. Odds are something crazy is going to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. it happened. Like, and that's fine. I'm not I'm not going to stand here and say that's bad filmmaking or bad storytelling. But like 
you really lose this sense of surprise and suspense that I think is essential to any real horror film because of it. Because we already know. It's it's like season two of Stranger Things, right? You know how the upside down works already. So it's not as it's just not as interesting. Yeah. And that really hurts, uh, along with the plot, the scares, which we should probably talk about, right? The horror. Right. So so the movie definitely does have a a ton of scares. Uh most of them are jump scares, which is fine. Some of them are really good and really well earned. The rest a lot of them are, are not. And they're still scary because when stuff jumps out at you, it's scary. But there's some other things. You know, there's some body horror. There's some grossness. There's, you know, some claustrophobic things. There's this really pretty incredible scene towards the end uh, involving people being submerged in what looks either like blood or in dirt. And there's this whole, like, I felt very, like, anxious, <laughs> you know, um, kind of buried alive kind of uh, situation, so it has kind of a vi- variety of horror, but the majority are definitely uh, jump scares. And speaking of which, there is definitely an an homage to both the Thing and, of course, The Shining. Yeah, there's a few horror homages in here. Keep an eye out. Specifically, The Thing. There's almost a shot-for-shot scene with a line spoken by Bill Hader directly out of the scene in The Thing. So keep an eye out for that. Um, which is, is is good. I'm not saying that was bad. I actually kind of liked it, but. Um, yeah, like the scares are just a little, they're not quite there. And I don't know if it's because we're, we're dealing with adults now and not kids and it's scarier for kids or more genuine or what, but like, and maybe it's cause we already kind of know how Pennywise works. We have an idea of, of what's going on with this thing, but like, I don't know. They're just a little like the CGI is not that awesome. And a lot of them, a lot, a lot of the monsters yeah. genuinely came off funnier than they were goofy. Like they look like something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon in a couple scenes. Um, but like, they, they, it's just not that scary. And, and the movie isn't, it's not, the, the jump scares are not as aggressive as they had to be. The music could have been louder. Like it could have been more of a jump scare, but it's a little bit more scare and less jump, but it's just not that scary. Ultimately, like nothing really spooked me. If anything, I was surprised by the humor in the film in which there is a lot. They give Bill Hader yes, definitely. And, and James Ransone, who plays Eddie's older version, uh, they give them a lot of, of comedy, room for comedy and, and laughs, which was surprising. Yeah, um, <laughs> this I, it's funny because I watched a video about how comedy isn't a genre, it's a modifier of film. And that's it reminded me of this because there are a ton of jokes. There are lots of laughs. There's lots of sight gags. It's I mean, it could it has more laughs than the average comedy for sure. Um it does. I do think that kind of hurts it because a lot of times there's a gag during a serious moment, and it kind of gets the Avengers problem where it it lessens the the that seriousness or the it lessens the drama because you're constantly cracking jokes. Yeah, there's one. There's one in particular. I know you're probably already thinking of the one I'm thinking of uh, that comes right in the middle of the climax of a scare. That is a gag for laughs uh, made in the editing room. That like. I, I, it might have been the funniest moment in the film because it comes out of nowhere, but like, it's so odd. Like, I don't, I don't get why they chose to make that moment funny, and they really didn't have to. I don't know if that was like a test audience thing. Like, well, it wasn't, it wasn't funny enough. It needs to be funnier or something. But like, yeah, it, it's, the movie mixes in laughs in a way that the movie, the first film didn't. That really does kind of draw from the suspense a bit. Um, I get it's adults, I get it's older, but like, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite ring the same way. It doesn't have the same punch and, and being a sequel, I get that's, that's a tall order, but like, 
I, don't, I think I think it was possible, and they just kind of actively chose to not go that way. We don't want this to feel like the first film. We want it to be different, and like, yeah, it kind of didn't need to because the first film worked really well. Yeah, and also the all the CGI kind of like you said, it hurts some of these scares and makes things. I mean, that's one of the things that was I thought was so good about the first film, which there's obviously CGI there too, but I felt like they used more like puppetry or practical effect, effects to. You know, where they would twist Pennywise into kind of really twisted contortions and things like that. But he would still look like a person dressed like something that could move and flex like that. Whereas this, you get a a bunch of like big CGI monsters that, like you said, look completely fake. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a weird, I've I've really been stuck on this uh, since we saw the film, but it's a weird thing with it, right? Like, because from, from the second scene in the first film, we get a straight up look at Pennywise's face. Like, whereas in any in any good slasher film, you really don't get a good look at the bad guy till towards the end, right? Mm-hmm. You see them behind a mask or something. But with Pennywise, like, they put him right in front of you. He talks. You can see him. He does the weird eye thing. Like, this movie has never tried to hide that. Mm-hmm. And they could have. Um, but it was this, still it, a while till we saw him, like, in full. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's valid. But, like... I mean, the, the the first film opens with a conversation with him that's, like, pretty long. It's, like, a few minutes, him talking to Georgie in the drain, right? Yeah. And this movie, like, doesn't quite open the same way, but, like, we just have such a good idea of who our bad guy is, you know, and what he's about, and that he's some kind of mystical, ancient something. This movie gets into it a bit more, but, like, coming off the first film, you pretty much know what what's up with Pennywise. You know what to expect. And this one, like... You just don't get the same suspense because you already know, you know, and, and they could have been inventive and creative and kind of done it a different way. But really, they just kind of don't like it's just yeah. kind of more more of the same. <laughs> well, we were we were discussing this last night with that, you know, in the first film, Pennywise, he manifests these different fears of of the children of loneliness or abuse or, you know, lots of other things. And then this they kind of abandon that they don't because it would be very different what what scares adults or what adults fear than what kids fear. And it doesn't really do anything to mock that. It's just kind of the same things. They're, they're scared of the same things. You know, Eddie's still a hypochondriac. Uh, Beverly's still scared of abusive men or, you know, or her herself. I don't, I don't know. The blood thing's weird, (laughs) Uh, but it just, it doesn't, you lose you lose a lot of the magic and the heft from the first film when they are adults. And I'm not sure that there was a way to salvage that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would argue maybe detract from the original King story. That might have been the better way to do it. Um, there's a gag in this movie about James McAvoy's character, Bill, who's a writer that is loosely based on Stephen King. And the whole bit is that he can't write a good ending, which is something Stephen King has struggled with for years. That's been a huge criticism of his work. So it's kind of funny that that's a nod in here. But uh, I mean, this, this movie really almost doubles down on that in a weird way. Um, Uh In a way that's like unironic. It's not particularly like coincidental or charming. Um, But yeah, like this movie has a big lean on mysticism and kind of explaining where Pennywise came from, but it just feels 
out of place. It doesn't really yeah. make a whole lot of sense, and it feels clumsy. The characters all having conveniently forgotten the events of the first film is like some soap opera amnesia stuff, like uh-huh. stupid <laughs> and and really did not need to be done that way. And it, yeah, it just feels like a lot of the plot conveniences are just that conveniences mm-hmm. because it would have been harder or more complicated to tell it in a different way. And I get you're going off a book, but like this is you know it's not a book it's a movie like you should maybe not be afraid to adapt the work and kind of change it up and make it work better um for film yeah for screen the, yeah the, the mysticism just does come come out of nowhere like it's you know you have this whole thing with like you know it reminds me of the shining indian burial ground you know sacred indian burial it, ground yeah indian, yeah, yeah. Indian, yep. indian people that that happen to know everything that no no one else does and you know i feel that you lose so much from the first film where you know pennywise like i said is a manifestation of your fear and then when you when you kind of add too much to his backstory and his mythos and you you lose what you said he was and originally yeah uh something i'm interested to see uh just kind of as we're wrapping things up here um the runtime uh, two hours and 50 minutes. I'm going to be honest. I felt like it was that long because the first one was that long. This one did not need to be that long. It could have easily the first been shorter. It's not that long though. It's, is th- it not? No, it's, I thought it was two uh, over two hours, but not like a way over Hold two on. hours. I'm going to look it up. Uh, yeah. I thought the first one was at least two and a half. Uh, I got to get to, I got two hours, two hours, 15 minutes. Is it really? Yeah. Oh so my it, God. It's a much tighter film. Yeah, and it works better. And this one's very long for f- really no reason. They they could have tightened up a lot. At one point, about an hour in, I was bored, and I uh, got up, went to the bathroom, and then while I was out there, I thought, you know what, I can go. I, I should go get my jacket out of my car. <laughs> went outside, and I never do this during movies, man. I don't even get to go to the bathroom during movies. But get, went outside, got my jacket, came back in, checked my ticket back in, uh, uh, sent a text on my phone, walked back in. They, the, it, it was like I missed nothing. The characters yeah. were in the same place. <laughs> And seemingly no information had been conveyed. I was like, man, it's like I didn't even leave. Um, I feel like there's more than a handful of scenes in this movie that are that way. Like, it just didn't need to be in there. It doesn't make any sense. So, And I wanted to see, uh, while I'm on my uh, 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 soapbox here, I wanted to see like the mythos of Pennywise grow in an interesting, unique kind of strange, enticing way. And it just kind of doesn't. Like, the way they mm-hmm. expand who he is, like is really dull. Yeah. And like I said, even though I like the flashbacks, you essentially could have cut all the stuff that we, all the young stuff that, I mean, it's cool, but I would have much rather focused on the adult characters, which I think is what's really different in the first one. Like the characters of each of the kids is really the focus. Whereas this, you you lose a lot of that because you got to make sure you see Pennywise. It does make me wonder how much of this comes from, uh, I, I really shouldn't probably call this out, but uh, the writers on this film are different because um, the uh, screenplay in, in the first was written by Chase Palmer and a guy named Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who wrote uh, True, True Detective. Detective yeah. yeah, he was not present for this film. And I just can't help but wonder, you know, what that changes. Like, I don't know if he wrote all the screenplay for the first one or a little bit, but man, I remember he was working on that one for a while. And then this one, he's completely absent from the writing. And it's just different, and I'm not sure what that means, but it's just that's just ultimately what it feels like. Like it's still good, and I'm so glad I saw it, but like it's just got problems, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, it does. One one other thing while I'm thinking about it, uh, this movie is distributed by Warner Brothers, uh, as is Doctor Sleep, 
which is coming out, uh, the, the sequel to The Shining. Stephen King is in this film in a cameo role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Warner Brothers imagery is featured prominently in the first act uh, when our man Bill Denbro, who's a writer, is on a Warner Brothers set lot with multiple Warner Brothers like logos in the film. I got a theory. I bet Stephen King shows up in Doctor Sleep as a cameo. I he would does, bet. Someone said he's the new Stanley. <laughs> he's the new Stanley. Yep, that's. I I heard that and I was like, I absolutely believe that's happening. Both of these films are made by Warner Brothers. Why wouldn't they get him to show up in both? Sure, they're going to make him the new Stephen the Stephen King averse. It's time. It's time. That's right. Any other thoughts before we wrap up? I think we're ready to go. Andy, would you recommend it? Chapter two. Uh, yes, with with some caveats. You know, if you're a big fan of Stephen King and of the first film. I mean, I think you got to see it and see how it ends. It, it definitely has its problems. It does a lot of things really well. It's got a great cast. It's really funny. It does have a lot of scares. That's what you want out of a horror movie. It's not as tight. It's too long. It doesn't have kind of the, I, I, what I felt was kind of deeper themes that the first film had. This one just kind of picks up where the last one left off, but then doesn't go anywhere with it. Um, and like I said, it's too long. I may have already said that. But Overall, I would recommend it. It is really violent. It, there is gore. It is rated R. So if you're squeamish about any of those things, I would pass. But generally recommend. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I would recommend it, especially if you saw the first film and you liked it. It, it I mean, it, it, it punches the clock, you know. It, it, it accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish. But, like, ultimately, it's just not as good. And, like, that bums me out. It's not, you know... It's okay. They keep making Marvel movies, and those aren't all as good as the previous one. Like, sometimes they're worse. You know, it's okay. Um, I just wish I, this one had a little bit tighter of a conclusion. The first one felt so good, and part of it, part of that was because it was self-contained, and this one just can't be. It has to build on what came before, and ultimately, I think that hurts it. Um, it, it could have been better. It certainly could have been worse. Ultimately, I would recommend it, but, you know... A, a word of caution, I guess. <laughs> I do have a continuity error I wanted to, to point out because this really bothered me. So oh, there, yes. Please. There's a scene when they're in 1989 at, their, at an arcade, and oh, there, no. there is a Mortal Kombat console, which, yep. as any good Mortal Kombat fan knows, did not come out until 1992. That's right. So it was, it was blatantly displayed because they were, they were like, hey, let's build an arcade. This is a classic arcade game. It was three it years is, too late. It is prominently featured, to be fair. Like they, it is, it is very obvious. Somebody explicitly was like, We're, "It's an arcade. Ooh, we gotta get a Mortal Kombat machine in there." And like, didn't look it up, um, which is a, sh- a shame. Yeah, yeah, they really should have figured that out. <laughs> I'll um, wait for the call from Hollywood. There you go. Yeah, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll expect our apology within the next week. Hollywood, let us know. Uh, next week on the show, uh, we're going to be taking a look at Hustlers. I'm actually a little excited to see that one. Uh, I'm skeptical, but you know. Who knows? Uh, we need we need more women in film anyway, so who knows? Maybe it'll be awesome. We're also going to take a look at Mary, Queen of Scots on HBO. That was that film that came out with Saoirse Ronan and... Margot Robbie. Uh, Margot Robbie, yes, as, as, mm-hmm. as Mary and Elizabeth, Warring Queens. Um, so we'll see what that's about. Uh, uh, we're going to be watching that on HBO, so if you got a subscription, check it out there. And watch with us and check out our review next week. If you enjoyed the show, if you got hot takes about this Apple Plus thing, or you think you've got a better idea for a good 
face-off, face-off uh, casting decision. If you thought It Chapter 2 was way better than we said, or maybe if you thought... Uh, uh, oh, God, what was the other movie we watched? It's been too <laughs> late long. night, been late talk, night. Talk for a whole hour. Late night was much better than we said. Let us know. Sound off. Hit us up on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram, too. We got things going on over there, and we're on YouTube. I, I never plugged that, but we definitely have a YouTube presence <laughs> going. Thanks to Andy Draper over there working hard. Uh, our website is offscriptfilmreview.com. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. And if there's anything you can do to show how much you like the show, just subscribe or rate and review. That helps a lot, too, on whatever podcast platform you're on. We appreciate it. Tip your cocktail waiter and or waitress on your way out and leave us a review. <laughs> it mean a lot. So, yeah. Uh, from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.